At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. Being here as we spend some time on this Good Friday, thinking about and reflecting on the crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ. If you're tuning in with us online, we're so thankful that you're with us as well. We do just want to remind you before we get going that we will be taking communion later in the service. So if you're at home, you might want to take a minute and grab some elements so we can prepare for that moment later during our time together. So tonight we want to engage and think about the cross, hopefully in an engaging and a little bit of a meaningful way. And we want to do it through the lens of Scripture. So if you have a Bible, I'm actually going to invite you to open it with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. And we're going to be looking at a large chunk in the story there. But as you're turning there, I kind of want to set us up a little bit by telling you a story from my own life. It was uh, several years ago now that I was, uh, I got one of those letters from the county courthouse. I was living in Ohio at the time one of those yellow letters that said I had jury duty. So I don't know if you've ever received one of those. I was actually excited to get it. I didn't, I didn't know. I was like, oh, I get to sit on a jury. And so, you know, I did the whole thing, got the letter, knew my date. That Monday rolled around, got dressed, headed down to the, the courthouse, sat in a room full of people. Finally, at one point, they called my name. I got taken up to, a, you know, the room. I don't know what the, the court, that's it. And so I sat there and they vetted me and I got put onto a case. And uh, for the next three days, I got to sit with a jury of my peers and make a decision regarding who was responsible for the damages in a car accident. Super exciting stuff. It was, it was mind-numbing at times. But the whole process was really fascinating to go through, from the vetting to sitting through the trial to the arguments that were made to all of it. And You know, one of the things that I was reminded of in that experience was the power of witnesses. Witnesses were such a key and integral part to what took place that, or over the course of those three days. I heard from countless witnesses. I heard from legal experts. I heard from medical experts. I heard from character experts, and each of them giving their take on the people and the events that transpired on that day to help us discern and figure out what really happened. What really happened. Some ways that's, I think, the power of witnesses. Witnesses force us to question what is true, what is real. In a trial, each witness presents their case and force you as the jury to make the decision. What do I actually believe happened in that moment? What took place when those two cars collided? How extensive was the damage to the cars, to the people? Who's responsible? Witnesses, each witness brought a new element to the story that forced me to consider the reality of what was taking place. Tonight, we want to look at and think about real events. A real event that happened some 2,000 years years ago. The trial, crucifixion, and death of Jesus Christ. But the way that we want to think through it, or at least I want us to tonight, is through the lens of witnesses. 
One witness overall in particular, the witness of Matthew, who has written us account of Jesus' trial, of his crucifixion, of his death, that bears witness. It's known as a gospel. Matthew thinks there's some sort of good news that happened within these events. But in Matthew's gospel itself, Matthew presents to us various witnesses, various people that were there, that saw it, that experienced it, that engaged it, that encountered it. And I think as you engage each of these witnesses, we begin to be forced to look once again at the reality of what actually happened when Jesus died. So tonight we're going to engage our story through the power of witnesses. We're going to kind of take a journey in engaging some of these witnesses. And I want to give you a heads up. As you came in, somebody gave you a legal pad. When I sat on the jury, what the only thing that I was allowed to have when I sat in court was a single legal pad that they gave me. It was the only thing I could do to take notes, to remember, to think about what the witnesses were testifying to. And that legal pad, it wasn't even allowed to leave the courtroom. I had to leave it there each night and come back to it. And when I went and the jury went to deliberate, the only thing we could take with us into that room was our legal pad and the notes we had from witnesses. You've been given a legal pad because tonight we're going to spend some time reflecting on the witnesses that surround the cross. We're going to take time to think about them, to hear from them, to contemplate what they cause us to think about Jesus. And then you're going to actually have time to take some notes, to think, to reflect. And then we'll also spend some time worshiping together, praying, reflecting, and remembering. So, as any good trial begins... It begins with a good question. What is the question before us? What is the thing that we need to consider tonight? Well, we're going to pick up our story in Matthew chapter 27, verse 11. It says this, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. We pick up our story tonight in the middle of Jesus' trial. Jesus has actually, prior to verse 11, just been before the Jewish Sanhedrin, what would have been almost like the Jewish Supreme Court. And they've found Jesus guilty of blasphemy, the highest charge that he claimed to be God. And so they send him, the Jewish Sanhedrin doesn't have any authority to actually execute or kill anyone because Rome was occupying the territory at the time. So they send Jesus to the governor of the area, Pilate, hoping that Pilate will find him guilty. And when Jesus comes before Pilate, Pilate asks him that simple question that we heard right at the beginning of verse 11. Are you the king of the Jews? And I love Jesus' response. He responds in only the way Jesus can, right? You have said so. You're like, what does that mean? But I think Jesus is actually being very strategic. Because the question that Pilate wants Jesus to affirm Jesus turns back to Pilate and says, what do you affirm? You're the one saying it. 
You're the one asking the question. In Jesus' own way, he forces Pilate to consider the very question that he's asking. And I think in many ways, Matthew strategically places it here in the text to be the question that we have to wrestle with. You see, the question that Pilate is forced to re-ask from Jesus' response is, who do you actually believe that I am? Are you saying I'm the king of the Jews? Are you not? What do you actually believe? You see, the reality of Jesus and what he went through forces us all into the same question. Who do we believe Jesus to be? Is he the king of the Jews? Is he not? That's the question that's before us. That's the question that each witness that we encounter will force us to come back to. What do we really believe about Jesus? About who he is? About what he was actually doing that day when he was tried, crucified, and ultimately died. Is he the king of the Jews? Is he who he said he was? So with that question in mind, we move to our first witness tonight. And actually, we've already encountered him in the text. It's the governor himself, Pilate. And Pilate, we see, forces us to begin to consider what is happening with Jesus' trial here. Look at verse 15. It says, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. Then they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, "Which of the two of you do you want me to re- which of the two do you want me to release for you?" And they said, "Barabbas." Pilate said to them, "Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ?" And they all said, "Let him be crucified." And here's the key question or the key issue. And he said, "Why? What evil has he done?" But they shouted all the more, "Let him be crucified. Pilate doesn't know what to do with Jesus. In Pilate's mind, he seems innocent. He doesn't seem like he actually did anything wrong. But he can't just let Jesus go because the crowd won't have it. And Pilate knows that if he did, it would cause a whole bunch of problems. And so he comes up with a interesting idea. I'll make them choose between Jesus and this man Barabbas. Now, what you need to know about Barabbas is Barabbas had caused an insurrection in the city of Jerusalem. He caused a riot, and in the process of that riot, he murdered someone. So he's in prison as a murderer and an insurrectionist. And I have to think in Pilate's mind, he's thinking, well, surely they're not going to choose to put a murderer back out on the streets if this guy's innocent. So if I can just get them to make a choice, they'll certainly pick Jesus. But lo and behold, he's shocked when the crowd says, no, crucify him. The same crowd that had chanted that Hosanna in the highest to Jesus just a few days earlier when he entered the city now calls for his death. It's interesting how fickle people can be so quickly. But the crowd is restless, and Pilate gives in. He defends his innocence at first. Why? What evil has he done? But at the end of the day, we see just a few verses later, he washes his hands and says, you do what you want with him. You crucify him. 
In many ways, Pilate bears witness to the innocence of Jesus. And he forces us to ask the question when we consider what Jesus is doing, is he guilty or is he innocent? Pilate was a governor from Rome. As a governor of Rome, he would have been very well known with the law of the land. He would have had to make decisions regularly between the innocence or the guilt of criminals. He was the one that would make the decision on who would die. He carried the gavel that could say guilty as charged. Or he could set someone free. And we see in Pilate the wrestling, the tension, the question. Wait, this man's innocent. Why do you want him killed? In the end, Pilate abdicates and allows the crowd to go and to deliver Jesus up to be crucified. But in the process, and in Matthew's story, he forces us to ask the question, what do we believe about Jesus as innocent? Do we believe he's innocent? Do we believe he's sinless? Or is he guilty? Is he just a liar? Is Jesus worthy of death, or was he worthy to be set free? In his death, is he just a guilty man condemned to die or an innocent man condemned to die for the guilty? You see, Pilate forces us to ask the question, what do we really believe about the innocence of Jesus? And if he is innocent, what does that mean for you and me? Why is that important? So tonight we want to give you just a couple minutes in your seat to consider that question. Is he guilty or innocent? And as you think about that, think about the implications. What does it mean for you and your life, depending on what you think and what Pilate bears witness to? We'll give you a couple minutes and then we'll worship together. So we come to our second group of witnesses in the text. Pilate delivers Jesus to be crucified, and in verse 27, we meet our new group. It says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. Kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail! To the king of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. So, a group of soldiers, pretty large group actually, almost a whole battalion, decide to rough up Jesus a little bit before he heads to the cross. And the way they decide to rough up Jesus is they hold a mock coronation ceremony. They decide they're going to crown him as king. And so they give him a royal robe. They take what likely would have been palm spikes with thorns, twist them into a crown, and shove it on his head. In some ways, it's a symbol of the same crown Caesar would have worn, but in a much more sinister 
and harmful way. They give him a reed that they'll later use to beat him, and they kneel in false reverence, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. You see, in the mind of this soldiers, Jesus is just a lowly criminal. Another Jewish insurrectionist who just needs to be dealt with and taught the power of Rome. And so they beat him. They mock him. And yet, even in the story that Matthew's telling, there seems to be another thread underneath the mockery of the soldiers. It's interesting to me how much detail that Matthew seems to go in with the specific way these soldiers mock him as king. It's even more ironic when you think about that from the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, he's been arguing that Jesus is the king. In fact, from verse 1, he signifies that he thinks Jesus is the king in line with the great King David. And so why here, suddenly, when Jesus is on the precipice of death, does he stop to note so clearly the great detail in which the soldiers mock him? It's because Matthew thinks this actually is a coronation ceremony. That this is actually part of the way in which Jesus is the true king. In fact, he continues even that theme into the crucifixion itself. Listen in 32 as he says, As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, here it is again, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Even to the point of crucifixion, Matthew continues to carry this kingly theme. In fact, one New Testament scholar, Craig Blomberg, notes of this moment, he says, Doubtless, Matthew saw the parody of Jesus' kingship extended further with the picture of one criminal on each side of Jesus, like a king with his advisors on his right and left hands. You see, the soldiers bear witness and force us to ask the question, is Jesus a criminal or is he the king? Which one is he? As Matthew recounts the witness of these soldiers, of the way they treat Jesus, the way they beat him, what they do to him, all the way to the point of even the men hung on his right and left, there's a reiteration and theme of the kingship of Jesus. But for Matthew, this king doesn't display his kingship through the normal power structures of the world. No, his kingdom is the upside-down kingdom, the one that comes through suffering, the one that says that blessed are the poor in spirit. And so the soldiers force us to ask again the question, who do we think Jesus is? Is he a criminal? If so, who cares how he's treated? Why not beat him more if he's guilty of the crimes that they herald against him? Or is he the king? And if he's the king, and this is his coronation ceremony, 
What does that mean for the sort of kingdom that he's bringing? What does it mean for us in regards to entering into this king's kingdom and living it out in our lives, in our world? So once again, we want to invite you to wrestle with the question. Is he a criminal or is he a king? And as you wrestle through your own affirmation, don't just wrestle through the question, wrestle through for a moment the implications. If the way this king is crowned is with thorns, and if the way this king enters his kingdom is through a cross, what does that mean for us as we follow him? So a couple minutes to reflect and jot and think, and then again we'll spend some time in worship. So as Jesus hangs there on the cross, we encounter our third witness. Look at verse 39, if you're in Matthew 27, it says, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And so the crowd begins to surround Jesus and to mock him. They begin to throw his words back in his face. If you said you'd destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days and you can't even come down from the cross, Jewish leaders that are present, Jesus is crucified in a public place, join with them to mock him even more. And even the robbers, even the actual criminals in the story, Make fun of Jesus on either side of him. It's clear in the story who these people think Jesus is. He's crazy. A madman. A fool. Certifiably insane. Somebody who should be put in a mental institution. Someone who made extraordinary claims and yet in their minds can do nothing in this moment to back them up. And the question that the crowd presents to us is, is Jesus crazy? Or is he the Christ? See, Matthew seems to once again have a lot of irony going on here. Is Jesus a helpless lunatic, unable to save himself? Or is Matthew trying to display that there's something else happening? He's recounted numerous times throughout his gospel the incredible miracles that Jesus did, from walking on water to feeding 5,000 people in one moment. So why here does it seem like this, that Jesus seems so helpless? Well, it's because he's not helpless. What Matthew is reminding and showing here is that Jesus willfully chooses to stay on the cross in this 
moment. Why? Well, because he's the Messiah, the anointed one who was chosen, destined by God to represent his people, to suffer on their behalf, to die in their place, as Isaiah 53 would allude to. And while the crowd wants Jesus to save himself, it was Jesus who came and reminded us that he who loses his life will ultimately save it. You see, Matthew highlights the mockery of the crowds because he wants you to wrestle with the reality that Jesus doesn't stay on the cross because he has to. Jesus stays on the cross because he chooses to. It was him who said, no one takes my life from me, but I give it up. I surrender it. And it's in this that Jesus actually on the cross shows himself as God's promised messianic king, as the one who will stand as a representative for the people and atone for their sins. It's precisely because he stays on the cross that he's shown in the reality of who he is. As one scholar puts it, Jeremy Treat, he says, Jesus reveals his kingship not by coming down from the cross to save himself, but by staying on the cross to save others. Jesus reigns by staying And he saves by giving his life. See, it's precisely because he stayed that you and I can be saved from our sins. That he would be the one, the Messiah, to suffer on our behalf. And so once again, these unsuspecting witnesses in the narrative force us to ask the question of what we really believe about Jesus Is he crazy? Is he a lunatic? Or is he the Christ, the true Savior, the one who chooses to die and give his life as a ransom for many? Again, I want to invite you just to a time of reflection. If his staying is his own choosing, And if his plan was to save through death, what does it mean for us? How do we respond to the reality of these witnesses in this moment? Let's take a couple minutes and reflect together. And now we come to the pinnacle moment. The key witness in the case. Every good lawyer has a key witness. We come to the marked moment that we gather to remember today. Verse 45 says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, My God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge filled with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. 
And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tomb also, the tombs also were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. And in this moment, Matthew brings us face to face with the greatest witness to who Jesus is is the cross the cross shows us the reality that jesus is in fact the king matthew highlights for us in the text and emphasizes what is taking place in the moment of jesus's death we see it when he highlights that Jesus cries out that final cry and it gives his last breath, yielding up his spirit, suddenly, in a moment, several miracles take place in the text. The land goes dark for three hours. I don't know if you've ever experienced three hours of darkness in the middle of the day. The curtain of the temple, which would have been thick, that no human could have ripped on their own, is ripped not from the bottom up, but from the top down. There's a significant earthquake, and Matthew recounts even that there were several resurrections that took place miraculously in this moment. For Matthew, each of these attests to the reality that something cosmically significant is happening. Something unique to the very history of the world is happening as Jesus dies upon the cross and even nature itself attests to the significance of this death. And amidst all these events, one group of unsuspecting people realize what's going on. It's a Roman centurion it's the person who shouldn't even be looking at this moment for the reality of what it is but yet recognizes that jesus is the son of god he sees these events and he confesses he recognizes what the cross reveals that jesus is the son of god one New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson, reminds us of the significance of what is happening on the cross when he writes, The darkness, the earthquake, and the cry of dereliction convinced the soldiers that this was no ordinary execution. The portents terrified them and probably led them to believe that these things testified to heaven's wrath at the per perpetration of such a crime in which the soldiers had participated. But this confession tells us something more. Jesus, as the promised Messiah and unique Son of God, is seen most clearly in his passion and death. You see, the centurion is only confessing what the cross 
is revealing. It's the cross that serves as the final witness. For it's when we look at the cross and we observe his death that we see who Jesus is and what he is about. The cross reveals Jesus as the Son of God. Matthew's been building this theme from the very beginning of his gospel that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messianic King, the one God promised to come and set the world right and establish his kingdom. And here on the cross comes the climax of this theme for as Jesus dies, the penalty of sin is atoned for and the powers of Jesus' enemies of Satan, sin, and death are overcome. On the cross, the kingdom of God comes to its definitive moment, and the king and his kingdom are most clearly revealed. For this kingdom is not born of military might or political power. It comes through self-sacrifice as the king of kings lays down his life to redeem sinners like you and me. It is through the cross that Jesus defeats all other thrones and powers and kingdoms and is revealed as the Son of God, not in spite of the cross, but precisely through it. And the witness of the cross declares across all creation and all of time what the centurion confesses. Truly, this man is the Son of God. But the centurion's confession not only stands as a statement to what the cross reveals, but it's also an invitation for us to respond to the reality of what it displays. This is an incredible thing if you think about it. For a Roman centurion to confess Jesus as the Son of God, he would have been very familiar with the phrase Son of God. It was a common phrase used to refer to the Caesars. It was a phrase originally adopted by Caesar Augustus. Because he claimed his father, his adopted father, Julius Caesar, was ascended to the gods and that he was, in fact, the son of God. That message was spread across the entire Roman area. It would have been even common in the area that Jesus was in, that Caesar himself was the son of God. And each of the subsequent Caesars would use this phrase. In fact, you can find coins from that area. I've seen them myself when I traveled in Turkey that herald the Caesar as the son of God. Yet here, we have a Roman soldier indoctrinated that his Caesar is the Son of God, reversing course, looking at Jesus on the cross and saying, truly, this man was the Son of God. It's a mind-boggling thing. It'd be likened to an American soldier today looking at Jesus on the cross and saying, truly, this man is the leader of the free world. What we see in this moment is a Roman soldier turning from what they know and confessing the truth of what is being revealed in light of Jesus' death. And I think Matthew, in many ways, is inviting us towards the same confession. Is he the king of the Jews? Pilate asks. And Matthew shouts across the narrative, Yes! Yes, 
He is the innocent one who's sinless and dies on the behalf of sinners. He is the true king who deserves the greatest crown but receives a crown of thorns in his sacrifice. He is the Christ, the anointed one who willingly lays down his life so that you and I could be set free. And he hangs on the cross showing that truly he is the son of God. Matthew invites us to the same confession to look at the cross and say this is who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. I hope tonight that you can confess that reality. If you can't, I would love to talk to you about what it means to put your faith in Jesus. But why we're gathered here, what we have the opportunity to do, is to together bear witness to the truth of Jesus to look again at the cross and confess in this moment, in this day in history, and say truly he is the Son of God. And the way we're going to do that tonight is through the taking of communion. So hopefully you have your elements, or you're at home, or if you're here, you gathered them as you came in the room. But it's as we come here and we take this piece of bread to symbolize Jesus' body given for us. The body that was torn, beaten, hung, killed. And we also come to the cup, reminding ourselves of the blood shed for us. For there is no atonement for sins without the shedding of blood. And yet Jesus willingly gave up his to cover our sin. And so we recount the words from the Apostle Paul who says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and having given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then this is my favorite part, don't miss this. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, tonight as we take communion, it's a proclamation. It's a declaration like the cross declared across history. We declare in this moment in Farmington Hills, truly this man was the son of God. Truly his body was given. Truly his blood was shed. So let us declare together what our king has done, who he is and what he has done. Let us eat and remember him. And likewise, let us drink and remember him together. And so, Jesus, we stand together now as your people, proclaiming what that centurion proclaimed so long ago, that which the cross reveals to us, that you, 
You are truly the Son of God. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You are our Savior. You're the Messiah, the Anointed One, the perfect prophet who shows us God's Word, the perfect priest that nurtures and unites us in relationship to God, the perfect King who rules and reigns over us. You're the promised one. You're the suffering servant. You are the Son of God. And we worship you. Not in spite of the cross tonight, Jesus. We worship you because of the cross. Because of what you have done. Because of what it shows to us. And we hold up the cross because it reveals you. And you alone deserve the worship and praise tonight. So we come to praise you for the cross, Jesus. To lift you on high. To say truly, this man, this Jesus, he is the Son of God. Let's sing and worship together. So we went into the jury room and we deliberated and we came to our verdict. And when the time came, we entered into the court and I'll never forget the moment when the judge asked, what's the verdict? Because it didn't matter what happened in that room until the judge read it and declared it out loud. And I'll I'll remember, looking at the faces of the people that were part of the trial as they waited for the judge to read it. It's like they held their breath for a moment. The world holds its breath for the next two days, waiting for the final verdict to be read. And I want to invite you to come back Sunday morning as we hear the judge of all judges declare the verdict over his own son. It's going to be awesome. 8 o'clock, 9.30, or 11 a.m. We'd love to have you. Have a great time till then. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.